I'm really looking forward to this next session. It's going to be um, quite excellent. We've called it Power, Leadership and Systems Change because as we've talked about this morning, there's no shortage of good ideas about where we go um, and what we can do together. And there's a lot of enthusiasm about building on the shoulders of all of those amazing folks who are with us today who've been working on various good, good projects for a long time. So the New Economy Network is almost a misnomer. We're actually building on all the good bits and pieces that have been emerging for a long time. However, it's probably fair to say that a lot of us are concerned about the, um, the power imbalances between some community groups and some of the other powers that be. So without further ado, what I might do is just briefly introduce each speaker, literally briefly, and then have them each give their talk and then open up for questions. Is that okay? Because I think you've chatted about how we run it. So first, I'm very, really pleased to be opening with um, Amanda Carl from the Centre for Social Change, and her talk is called Diversity as Resilience, Building the Fossil Fuels Economy. And, oh, 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 oh my God. <laughs> what a Freudian slip. Building the post-fossil fuels economy. Hang on, I'm in the wrong conference. Hang on, I'll be back. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Reading too quickly. I'm going to pay much more attention now. Hang on. Darren Sharp, social surplus, technology and inequality, lovely. And Elsie, I apologise, I cannot pronounce your last name. Louis Yeh. Louis Oh, that's lovely. Elsie Louis Yeh will be talking about power and value in the new economy. So without further ado, give it up for Amanda Carl. Woohoo! You don't have one. Even better. Wow, I just got credit for building the most powerful industry we've seen in a really long time. <laughs> what I do is quite different. Um, for the last three and a half years, I've been really lucky to work with some amazing people across rural Australia who are interested in building a different kind of economy, a zero carbon emissions economy. And we're doing that, um, we're taking a bit of a different pack, tack with it by looking at what are the economic opportunities in moving beyond fossil fuels. So across all sectors, not just energy, but land use, waste, transport. Um, always forget one. Buildings, buildings and energy. And we're trying to figure out what are the processes, not just the ideas about what that's going to look like, because as Richard said, we don't know yet, but what are the processes that we can step different communities through that they can actually start to envision that future for themselves in a way that actually fits with their local context and that they own that moving forward. And that the solutions they're coming up with are going to be much more appropriate because they fit with the local context. So this work has involved a lot of direct work with tiny little communities from um, Bingra in far western New South Wales to Byron Bayshire where they're going to zero emissions within 10 years um, and are starting to do it. All the way up, thank you, where are the Northern Rivers people? Um, all the way up to doing policy work with unions, environment groups and even state and federal politicians and public servants. So it's been a really interesting example and what I want to do now is pull out some of the lessons that I've learned through looking at the energy sector in particular and what it can tell us all about how we can start to build a very different kind of economic relationships and practices that actually fit across all sectors, whether we're talking about food or buildings or any other um, areas that we might be working on. Um, despite what it sounds like in the media, I just want to start with some good news. The energy transformation to 100% renewable energy is well underway. Yes, please. <laughs> so just to give you, I want to give you a couple of concrete examples as I go because we talk very conceptually. So give you some examples just from the last week. Um, I was reading yesterday that we're now producing enough energy through solar, wind and hydro to power around 70% of Australia's homes. 
In South Australia, not only did Elon Musk get involved in building the next biggest story, battery storage facility, but we've also heard that um, in Port Augusta, there's been approval for a concentrated solar thermal tower. I'm not going to explain what that is, which was a hard-won battle by community groups. And even in Queensland, with the government backing Adani, um, the state government, um, in just in the last 10 days, has been five new large-scale solar and wind projects around the state um, announced and all sorts of other changes. So there is stuff happening, and I want you to hold on to that because it's important. The second piece of good news, which is more relevant to our discussions today, is that this energy revolution isn't just being driven by the market, no matter what people will tell you. And it's not necessarily being driven by good government policy, but it's actually being made up of all sorts of different groups that are employing all sorts of different economic strategies to make this happen. From local governments actually taking back control over local utilities, to cooperatives actually starting community-owned renewable energy projects, to indigenous corporations setting up trusts, to individuals who have solar panels on their roofs. There's a lot of different economic experiments that are happening. And I don't want people to think that that's just capitalism at work because there's something fundamentally different that's going on. This kind of diversity is not just good for the grid. And with the new energy grid, we actually do need decentralised small-scale systems in lots of different places. But diversity is also really good for building a new economy. And it's good because what it's doing is it's spawning a range of different economic experiments that are pushing the boundaries around what is possible around how we produce, how we exchange, how we organise labour and how we share surplus. So to give you a couple of concrete examples, we've got community, I think there's nearly 100 official community-owned renewable energy projects all around Australia, and they're using very different models. Some are kind of business as usual, former company, some are social enterprises which have a slightly different model, some are cooperatives. But, and they're experimenting with community finance, impact investment. There's lots of different things going on. Um, we're seeing local governments pledging all over the country to get to 100% renewable energy within different timeframes. And in doing so, they're actually being really proactive in setting up new kinds of um, local initiatives and making sure that that's locally owned and the money actually stays locally as well. A really nice example of this in the Byronshire is the refurbishment of the Mullumbimby hydroelectric system which is 96 or 93 years old. And they've actually, that was the first electricity generated in the Shire, and they're actually bringing that back in as a local initiative. And also, this is enabling different kinds of exchange, like, for example, local energy trading systems. So what's interesting to me is that these are offering us a different way of working together and to figure out how we're going to build this, this new economy. It's testing out the kinks in the systems that we already have in place. Like there's people experimenting co-ops in very different ways, for example. Um, there's people uh, experimenting with participatory budgeting, um, all kinds of different things. So it's testing out the models. That's number one. That's what it's offering us. Number two, it's also offering people opportunities to practice new forms of democracy. Over the last four or five years, we've seen a real awakening of civil participation in Australia. People who never thought they'd see themselves and their kids out protesting the streets are now almost seasoned in doing it. But they're getting to a point of going, OK, we know what we're trying to stop, but what are we actually trying to build? And people are starting to ask quite radical questions about the economy and how do we do that? So these little tiny economic experiments that seem kind of nice and cute and on the side and outside the mainstream system 
are actually offering a lot of people their first step into learning about how, what does it actually mean to be a different kind of economic actor? What does it mean to move from being kind of independent and relying on my cash income to get everything I need to actually being interdependent? What does it really mean to participate in the sharing economy? And this is hard work, and we can't underestimate how much more support that actually needs to actually make people feel safe enough that they can start to trust and relate to each other in very different ways. And that's why I love the fact that we've got the fair outside where we can actually practice that ourselves rather than talking about it as a nice thing to do. And the third thing that these economic experiments are offering us is a really good opportunity to address some of the current and historical injustices in this country that we've already been talking about this morning with Australia's First Nations people. So we've got the technology now and we've got the economic models where remote Indigenous communities can build their own renewable energy projects and actually use that money how they want to see it fit rather than being dependent on the government subsidising diesel fuel power, for example. And we're seeing Indigenous corporations setting up trusts and putting that money back into projects that the community want to see for themselves. So if this is all happening, and it is, and it's great, where are we getting stuck? Because there's a hard edge to what's going on. We should be on the te technology side of things. We should be a lot further along than we are, especially around renewable energy. Well, it's complex, yeah? We're in the middle of the transition. We're going to look back at it and make sense of it, but at the moment it's all confusing. But there are a lot of themes that keep coming back to the same thing over and over again across the communities I'm working with, and that's power. I'm not talking about electricity. <laughs> I'm talking about politics. So make no mistake, the way we produce, exchange um, and use energy, it's no longer a technical challenge. No matter what the media tells you, we have the technology to have 100% reliable electricity. Now, that's not something we need to sort out baseload power. This is a political challenge. So, you know, it shouldn't really be a surprise, but the fact that we've got the decentralised nature of a new technology is directly threatening the interests of a few people to be able to monopolise an essential service. Whether you're talking about mining of coal or the construction of really large power plants. The pushback was always going to be inevitable, and it is real. Like, it's not, like, despite what we were told, this is actually people enacting power to actually stop things happening as fast as they could be happening. At a local level, I see this being felt viscerally in people's bodies. With the politicisation of energy and climate change, um, the debate is polarising communities and leaving people downright scared. Like, I walk into rooms like this and people are afraid. So many people feel that they've actually, they've kind of have to fit a camp. You either have to be for coal and therefore have to have serious doubts about renewable energy, or you're an extreme greenie who's judged as either completely naive or militant in trying to bring down real good Aussie jobs. Without people feeling like there's any other choice or any other camp to belong to, people are frozen, defensive, and they don't know where to start. So what I've been finding in working with people is we can't deny that or judge that fear as ill-informed. We actually have to confront it and acknowledge it. Until people actually feel heard, and feel safe enough to put their hand up and say, I don't really understand, then we're not going to get anyone to move past that and to be able to see that there are other options. People need to feel that they're not alone, and then they can start to kind of go, well, what else is there, and what are the pathways forward? To be able to do this, we actually need a lot more people on the ground listening. And we actually need to be able to do the emotional work on ourselves to be able to walk into that room and hold that space for real dialogue to happen. 
We talk about dialogue like it's, oh, well, we just do a dialogue. It's hard work, you know. I have people in tears and yelling <laughs> in, in workshops. So what do we need to do for ourselves to be actually be able to hold those, sp those spaces and to listen deeply, to actually work with conflict, like Aunty Mary was talking about this morning, not shy away from it, and meet people with where they're at. So that's the first political challenge. The second political challenge is the way that the divisive politics is shutting down action within government. So like um, Richard was saying, be really careful when you're talking about who are we talking about when we're criticising. Because I'm meeting people, elected officials and public servants across all levels of government who are desperate. They know what needs to happen and they want to make it happen. And behind closed doors they're talking about that, but they don't feel that they've got the political mandate or the space publicly to be able to go there yet. They're scared too. So what can we do to create a bigger space for them to be able to get on with that and talk about different kind of economic models? Some of it is resistance. Some of it is calling them out and being really confrontational about that. But it's also, um, and they actually want that. I've been working with Queensland government saying, you need to hold us to account. Hold us to account because it gives us the space as decision makers to push that boundary a bit further. But it's not just that. We've actually got to become a lot more politically sophisticated in how we're working with decision makers to give them permission to change. Sometimes it's about seducing them into making the right decision in terms of promising them something. Sometimes it's straight, straight information or access to things. And a lot of the work that we have to do is actually build the models. They, they don't know how else to do what they do. So if we can actually show them, if we can document it, if we can actually put that in front of them, they've actually got something else that they can draw on when they're trying to make decisions about the next policy. So it's our job. We've got to start building the new and actually talking to them about what we're doing. The final political challenge I want to highlight is the very dangerous and pervasive idea that the market will sort it all out and the best technology will win. This is wheeled out time and time again, not just in the energy sector, um, at a federal level to justify rolling back regulations that would have seen the job done already. What's been really surprising to me is, ironically, it's, I'm actually hearing this most from energy companies saying to the government, we actually need you to regulate and have stable policies so we can get on with the job because investment won't flow while you keep changing your mind about this. Um, so then the issue is once we do have really good policy, then the companies can get on with it and that's kind of great on one level because they've got the scale and um, the pace to be able to roll things out really quickly on a large scale. But there's a question that we need to be start, starting to think about around what sort of economic relationships is that setting up and is that actually strengthening business as usual and who's going to get left behind by that? Are we actually inadvertently setting some people up to actually monopolise an essential service moving forward, which will actually destroy all the diverse economic experiments that are happening that are actually supporting rural communities? Companies themselves acknowledge that they're not designed for the public good, they're designed to make profit. And so I've heard them in Senate inquiries say, you know, we're not going to service remote communities or vulnerable communities. We actually, you need some other models to do that. So we need to make sure that that's actually government's job, but it's also how do we support communities that do want to do that for themselves. So given that many of the barriers to building a fairer, more ecologically sound economy are political and not just in the energy sector, so much more of our work, the work of the people right here, right now, needs to get political, because embedded in everything we do is a question of economic justice. To pursue economic justice effectively, we need a lot more people on the ground organising community. We need to develop our own political skills, um, and we need more organisers. 
It's not enough to inspire people with an idea or an argument or more data or to build isolated projects. How do we build our community together so that we can actually build our power together? There is reason to take heart. There is already so much going on. We need to keep holding on to that and telling those stories so other people outside this room know that. We have the economic tools and models to experiment with, but it's not going to be an easy ride. Power will push back. So we need to be courageous. We need to meet people with where they're at. We need to do the emotional work on ourselves to hold that space. And while we do need to resist and hold government to account, we also need to be creative in making safer and open spaces to build a new economy, one that's good for people and the planet. Thank you.